You're listening to In Good Company with Hugh Byrne, a podcast about living consciously, making healthy choices, cultivating the power of awareness, and bringing mindfulness to our work and our lives. Delighted this afternoon to have as a guest on In Good Company with Hugh Byrne to have Mike Barnes. Mike is an attorney working on two of the major policy issues of our time, really. The first, opioid addiction and finding solutions to that. And the second, healthcare reform. Mike also has his own law firm, DCBA, and is a co-founder of CLAD, which is a nonprofit that is working in providing solutions around addiction. Let me have you say exactly what CLAD does to get us going. CLAD works to reduce prescription drug abuse and its consequences. Wonderful. Talk to us a little bit about your own journey to be doing work in these two key areas. Here we are in Washington. We're a few blocks from the White House. Healthcare reform, a vote in the next week or two possibly on that. Opioid addiction has been one of the central issues of the numerous people dying, becoming addicted and dying from addiction to opioids. How did you get involved in these areas? Talk to us a little about your own personal journey. I first got into the field of drug safety and healthcare just by the opportunity to have a smart boss. That's rare in any person's life. It's rare even more so in Washington, D.C. But I was a political appointee in the Bush 43 administration. And part of that process, they send us out on interviews. Well, my first interview, I had a chance to meet with a physician who was working in the White House Drug Policy Office, working to reduce the demand for drugs of abuse in the United States and the opportunity to work for her, somebody who would teach me something every day, who would challenge me every day, was worth taking at the first interview without even considering what my other options were. And I'm really pleased I do. I still work with her today through the private sector and on these issues related to drug safety and healthcare. Was there anything in your own life that drew you to this area? Or was it more just meeting somebody kind of opportunistically at that time who inspired you, got you involved? I'll say broadly about the law, I've always been what I would uh, say is a passionate advocate. As the youngest of three boys, I loved to argue. I had to argue mm. to survive. And so I think that the law is a natural pro progression for someone like me who's accustomed to trying to outwit someone who might have been better resourced or figure out a, a way to get what he needed. And now I can apply those skills to my clients and I enjoy that opportunity. Talk, tell us about some of the main challenges or a couple of the main challenges that you've faced in your career, in your life, and how you went about dealing with them, responding to them. That's a big question, but I think as it relates to my career, I learned pretty early on that I am better off in a position where I have an opportunity to be creative. I have the, the freedom that goes along mm. with being able to find a challenge and pursue a solution and really finding meaning in the work that I do. So that enabled me to do work in the not-for-profit sector and then to work in a smaller law firm where I really can pursue the opportunities that I would like to pursue and decline those that are not a good fit. 
Have you felt at any time in the, in the work that you've been doing in these recent years burned out or really overly challenged that you kind of met something that like, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to respond to it? Any moments like that? Of course, yes. I'm an attorney and working in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm pleased to have that opportunity, but it means that I can feel overwhelmed as recently as a couple of hours ago. All right. It's a great blessing to feel that way because it means that it is opportunity. But the, the challenge for me is to to step back and really prioritize and identify what I want to do now and what has to go on a maybe one day list and what has to go on a wish list and then really focus on knocking things out even if it's just one small task that can enable me to make progress toward a goal and sometimes that's all it's all I can do on in a particular day but I want to do something to move myself forward every single day. So it sounds like organization of your time and your work is a really key thing for you that if you find ways of doing that even if it's a stressful or challenging thing that if you feel that you're moving forward and you're organized in that way you can respond absolutely that. you you know i i do my very best on a tight schedule and if, you know i think about when i was most productive in my life and it was when I was working full time and going to law school and managing still to make it to the gym pretty much every day and still seeing friends and family in my off hours. Uh, I would like to achieve that level of productivity now because you know, I right now focus on maybe one of those things or two of those things a day, but I really do well with that sort of regimented schedule that keeps me on task. Yeah. And what about daily habits? Are there things that, that keep you healthy, keep you well, keep you focused that you do every day that maybe life would be different if you didn't have those, whether physical, mental, emotional, whatever? I try to make time every day to eat well, a couple times a week at least to exercise. Uh, one of the things that I don't do is I don't really let other people prioritize my life. And so that means saying no to my iPhone. It means not checking emails more than a couple of times a day mm -hmm. and identifying my schedule and my goals for that particular day and sticking to them. What would be nice also is more often than not to cut out TV, to make it to bed early on time and to get up early. I achieve that some days, other days it's a little bit harder. But it sounds like you've been fairly successful in some of these areas to kind of wall off the email to a certain time in the day and not just have your phone ready to pick up whenever there's some feeling of worry or anxiety That's not right. to do that. I would never get anything productive done <laughs> if I were just responding to other people's demands for my time. I see every single email as an assignment and I, I can't be drawn off course with my goals and my mm. client's needs by that assignment. So really, you being more in the driver's seat rather than being reactive to what's coming in yes. to you feels like a, a healthy and a helpful way. Of it's a crucial way to maintain focus on the goal. And so it sounds like that contributes to some balance in relation to work and life. Are you able to kind of wall off your work? Do you feel you have a good boundary there? And I do. I, I feel like I'm an effective advocate in the workplace and I'm able to shut it off and really take care of myself and my loved ones in my off time. That means, of course, putting the iPhone in the drawer and it means making time to go for a walk with the dogs every day. It means making an opportunity multiple times a week to exercise and mm -hmm. all of that is, again, a part of a regimented schedule. I'm very sensitive to 
in nutrition and exercise. And I know if I don't make them a priority, then my productivity will go on a downward spiral to where I won't be able to achieve my goals on a daily basis. So I've learned enough at my age now to recognize what I have to do in order to stay healthy and productive. And for the most part, stick to those goals and I can continue to do my work and also have a pretty balanced home life. Mm -hmm. Do you have models, that, people who've inspired you, who've kind of like, oh yeah, this person, looking at how they're living their life, whether it's their values or their work-life balance or whatever it is that says, maybe I could be more like her or maybe I could be more like him. Any of, anybody for you? Definitely. I, I strive to be like my parents in their work ethic. Mm. And my parents worked very hard their entire adult lives until retirement in their 60s. And in difficult jobs that had, you know, in one case, long commutes with kids and with pets and they managed to do it and largely without being burnt out. We were ready for retirement when it occurred. Mm -hmm. They managed also to save well, to have a very luxurious retirement of being able to do whatever they want to do whenever. And I admire that they really set their goals, were very generous with their children and still managed to save and build a good life for themselves in retirement. I would like to be able to do the same thing based on their model. What do you think supported them? Did they have faith, religious faith? What were kind of the bedrock for them, if you could? I think for them, and, and you know, in many cases for me, it's that sense of this is necessary for our survival. We've got to do it. You know, if, if I don't get out of bed on a daily basis, it doesn't mean just that my clients' needs go unmet. It means that the people with whom I work are at risk of losing their jobs and their income and not being able to feed their families. So it goes to a much bigger sense of what it takes to survive. And that desire to survive is what actually makes me thrive. What about core values? Are there core principles, values, kind of ethical foundation for you that kind of informs what you do in your work life and in your life more generally? Definitely. You know, in, in the work that I do as it relates to healthcare and even the prescription drug abuse question, uh, question and issue, I, I really try to build much of the recommendations that I have around those issues on the premise of compassion. So in the case of prescription drug abuse, we have to deal with that problem in a way that demonstrates compassion for the people who have addiction and the issues that underlie addiction, for the people who are experiencing the loss of a loved one due to overdose or experiencing the challenge of having a loved one who is addicted and is not yet ready for treatment. But along the same lines, we also have to demonstrate compassion for the people who need controlled medications, for the individuals who really can't go without say an opioid medication for pain. So you can't just fix this problem by taking away people's medications. And then on the broader healthcare reform side, the same thing goes, you can't take away people's insurance once they have it and once they feel like they're finally getting the healthcare that they're due. We can demonstrate compassion in a way that also reflects market incentives and that ultimately creates a sense of responsibility for consumers to take care of their health and ration their own healthcare consumption. So. Broadly, uh, compassion, I think, underlies much of the policy work that I do. It's, you know, it's been pointed out that there seems, and this not re referring to you, but in the broader context, that there's more compassion available in responding to the opioid crisis when the people who are suffering are white people 
which was different than you know a decade or a couple of decades ago where the people that were suffering were people of color. Does that feel like a contradiction to you? Not for yourself so much, but in terms of the broader culture. It is definitely something that, that I and my colleagues noticed early on. And the only thing I can say about that uh, disparity in level of attention due to this issue is that at least as we're dealing with the issue of prescription drug abuse and its consequences with now heroin use and fentanyl and counterfeit drug abuse, that everybody's addiction issues are being addressed, right? So at least everyone is gonna rise and benefit from these policies that are being implemented as it relates to prescription opioid and heroin abuse. So at least we're addressing the needs of those communities that were otherwise neglected previously. In terms of the successes that you've had, the effectiveness that, that you've had in these, particularly these two areas of your work life, what would you put that down to? I think you've you spoke about your parents and what they've taught you. Any other things in terms of values or anything else that, that feel like important contributors to being effective, being as good a lawyer and as a good an advocate as you, you've been able to be? It goes back to, again, the opportunity for meaning in my work, a daily challenge uh, to do things differently, uh, to do things that other people are not doing to meet the needs that are unmet, and then uh, to utilize freedom to you know, be able to employ the, the freedom that comes with either having you know, founded a nonprofit with friends and colleagues or founded a, a firm and you know, staffed that with people who share the values that I have for the firm and clients, that level of freedom and opportunity for creativity really, I think, is what works for me. And I know that uh, there are many people who don't have smart bosses like I was able to get or who work in scenarios where they're employed. But I think that that doesn't make a difference if you're able to pursue the opportunities and be aggressive about doing things that make a difference to you. That can be applied in any setting. If you're a good communicator, you identify your goals and really open up about your desire to be able to pursue them. What are some areas that maybe not so much things that you're working on right now, but areas that you have some real passion about, that you care about deeply, that you'd want to see changed in the world or in you know particular policy areas? There's certainly a lot. Some of them are tangential to the, the work that I do, mm -hmm. criminal justice reform, of course, and making sure that people have adequate health care when they're incarcerated. And that's something that I try to carry out also in my firm, you know, you know, understanding that the people with whom I work are, are there because they're pursuing their personal goals. They want to you know, ultimately be able to take good care of their families. They want to be able to have a nice home. They want to be able to take a vacation occasionally. And so bearing those things in mind also, I think, provides an opportunity for us to unify our goals and for us to be able to communicate openly and support each other in our goals. And I'm you know, really pleased to have a great group of people to work with. But there are occasions when somebody's just not a good fit. And that's where it's also, in my opinion, very crucial to have compassion and to recognize that if someone is not working out in a job, that the decision to let them know that that's the case and to help them move along is going to be a life-defining decision, a memorable event in that person's entire life. And so we make the effort to handle that with care and caution as well. It seems like in the Buddhist teachings that there are kind of, it's often spoken of as two wings of the bird. One is compassion and the other is wisdom. And to be able to balance those, you know, so if you had somebody who wasn't working out, 
to be compassionate, to care about them, to care about their family situation, all of that, but also to be to have the clarity and the discernment to say, well, if this isn't working for them and it isn't changing and it isn't working for everybody, then the compassionate thing and the wise thing might be to say, well, how do we how do we move ahead? How do we separate our our ways here? If we don't have a balance of wisdom and compassion, then nothing really flies. I have not considered it that way previously, but it makes sense. And for, for me, I think the harder of those two values is the wisdom. You know, I, I have made a lot of decisions that led to hard lessons. My goal now is not to repeat those mm-hmm. same mistakes. You know, certainly strive to learn from, you know, ultimately wisdom is something that I think comes with life experience. And I'm at that point now where I'm accumulating it and starting to recognize it. Broadening it out, the, the conversation out a little bit to where we are. I mean, here we are, you know, a mile from the White House or so, and just up the road and you working in these policy areas, which are much at the center of the kind of the political debate right now and people's lives really hanging in the balance, as it were, around opioid addiction and around what kind of healthcare coverage people have. There's a lot of pessimism around now, I would say, about the possibility of even having meaningful, heartfelt discussions across the political divide. What do you feel about that? Do you feel optimistic, pessimistic, realistic about what the possibilities are of really even having perhaps an effective democracy here if we're not even able to talk with each other? What do you see as where we are and how do we move on from this? If we, you know, asking a fairly broad question there. I definitely realize that the polarization in U.S. culture, especially as it relates to politics, is something that needs to be addressed. Maybe it'll be addressed naturally. Maybe it'll just balance out as people get tired of hearing the same repeat talking points on one cable network and the other, the opposite point of view on a different cable network. And maybe they'll go for a more thoughtful and analytical middle ground. That would be my hope. But I also think that there are some important policy measures that could be taken to help to ensure that at least in our U.S. Congress, that that level of polarization does not continue. And so that would entail eliminating the gerrymandering of congressional districts, which I think would ultimately yield a more moderate federal policy, which would benefit us all. So sorry to bring it back to sort of the policy and legal perspective, but I think that that would be a solution that would at least help our government be more functional. As somebody who's worked in policy and advocacy, I see the wisdom of coming back to to those. I mean, also of looking at the bigger picture, but also coming back, what are the steps that we can take that that can, can move the process forward? Maybe as we move towards kind of concluding, would you like to share anything about your experience, maybe anything we haven't yet talked about, that any lessons that you've learned, any wisdom that you've gained through your work, through your life that might be of help to others, skills, practices, insights, anything? I think that the one thing that I recognize, and I learned through hard lessons at work, is the value of sincerity. Uh, not just, of course, in your personal relationships, but also in professional relationships. So as I think about 
how I create stability for my firm and the people with whom I work or CLAD as a not-for-profit organization that has an important mission, I realized that relationships really are the key to creating that level of stability where someone recognizes where your heart is and recognizes that even if you, you know, are not always getting everything perfectly right, that you're doing your best and you're making good progress toward a goal. And that sincerity means a willingness for someone in the work environment to open up and be a little more willing to share what's going on in his or her personal life. Mm-hmm. Not oversharing, not being inappropriate, but you know, letting someone know what might be going on if that entails some sort of impact on work or if it addresses uh, a goal that might be a shared goal between the company and the individual. That level of sincerity, I think, is one of the lessons that I've learned and that really has been the hardest learned lesson. But uh, now that I've got it, I'm happy to have it and I'm not letting go of it. Does that also include some level of vulnerability, willingness to be vulnerable in as you say, not oversharing and not kind of pouring your guts out necessarily, but being willing to to be open, to be to be vulnerable, to step outside your comfort zone. I think would be what one way. Yes, of saying it. I you know I wouldn't say that sincerity is a reason for you to justify excuse making. Uh, or that it's a reason for you to justify non-performance or anything like that. But certainly it can be useful in developing those relationships where communication can be open and where you mutually support each other on a personal level. And that has worked well for me now that uh, I've realized that that, there is a a place for opening up and sharing personally in the workplace. Mm. I think that overall it benefits clients, it benefits the individuals with whom I work in not-for-profit organizations, my colleagues, uh, myself, my family, we're all better off because of that level of sincerity and a willingness to open up. Just a couple of final things, if you'd like to share anything about what you've done some of this already, but if there's anything else you'd add, what's most meaningful in your life today? I mean, obviously you're to your your dogs and right. very important in in your life and your family I think and what other other things are obviously a strong commitment to your work and the interests of those who you're representing or supporting the biggest we haven't really addressed is just trying to figure out what is the meaning of life why are we mm-hmm. here and something that for me started a little over five years ago and i tried mm-hmm. to address it by reading some of the classic literature and then uh, going on yoga retreats picking up yoga and then you know ultimately recognizing the value of relationships and what it ultimately has yielded for me is I definitely recognize that the relationships are opportunities to learn. And the more that we can learn and and generate that level of greater sincerity, uh, the closer we get to godliness, right? The more that we can identify opportunities to love and to forgive and to be like God or whatever else you you might call the higher energy, that that is definitely something that I strive for. And that's why I try to pursue compassion and Mm -hmm. why I want to be loyal to my friends and family and really have strong relationships. And then also why I want to be sincere in those relationships. I assume in there is a kind of complementarity, I can think of the exact word, between between that inner search and what you're doing in the world, that those be kind of hand in hand. Yes. That there not be 
a contradiction, obviously, between them. That would feel very strange, obviously, if your inner values and your what you're doing are out of alignment. Yeah. So, so you're doing something in the in the two areas of policy areas that clearly you care about, and that, in a sense, do they speak very much to those underlying values? That sense of moving towards greater meaning in your own life. Yes, absolutely. And you know that goes back to the freedom that I love about my job, for example, mm. just to say no to a client mm. or just to say no to a potential partner with a not-for-profit organization. Because in this field, there are a lot of people who would be willing to exploit the needs of patients or consumers. So for example, the people who operated the pill mills back five years ago mm. that were putting these prescription opioid medications out on the street, or the people who are now exploiting coverage of healthcare treatment for addiction and abusing and fraudulently billing insurance companies. There are a lot of people who would like to use the services of a firm or work with a nonprofit to be able to navigate the gray area and do something that it might be legally permissible according to the black letter law, but certainly morally questionable. And I have the freedom to say no. And that means that I don't necessarily, in the work that I do, have the revenues for my firm or the take-home salary that maybe someone at a bigger firm does. But I certainly have a great opportunity to get up each morning and look forward to my work for that Wonderful. reason. There's no price that you can pay for peace of mind. And I guess, you know, a number of the conversations we've been having this afternoon, a word we've come back to is integrity. You know, that sense of personal integrity also very closely linked to truth, right. you know, being in alignment with what's true, particularly as we hear about fake news, and, you know, being able to, you know, people being able to kind of deny that what is true is actually true, you know, what, what is happening is happening, oh, that's not, you know, it's not happening. So that sense of personal integrity. I'm going to finish off with one question, and that is what, if you could do one thing to make the world a better place, what comes to you, if anything? I think if magically I could address the fear in the world, mm. that it would lead to greater peace in the world. Because I really do believe that it's fear that drives most of the misunderstandings between and among human beings. And if we could get over that fear and just, again, demonstrate that level of compassion or understanding or even just respect the differences and not be afraid of them, we wouldn't have the problems that we have right now with terrorism and potential wars and even the problems of you know, economic burdens and poverty and that sort of thing. There would be a greater willingness to go in and help other people. And overall, we would see a much more peaceful world. I wish I had that magic snap of a finger. It's a wonderful reflection. And I don't personally think that there is a magic formula I look at it as all of our emotions are really telling us something. They're not bad, even though they might be difficult. Some of them, anger, fear, might be difficult. They're actually telling us there's something to be look out for. There's something to be, be aware of. What's most important, I think, is how do we respond to it? And I think that's really what you're getting at. If we respond to fear by saying, oh yeah, this person over here is the enemy, and if we can only get rid of them, then the problem would be solved. Rather than saying, well, this is, yes, I feel fear. Can I work with this? Can I open to this? Can I process this? And then if I can do that, if I can 
deal with that, then I don't have to lay it off on somebody else or blame somebody else. There's a lovely thing that Albert Camus, the French philosopher, said. He said, we all carry with us our crimes, our our ravages, our places of exile. Our task is not to put them out there on the world, but to transform them in ourselves and in others. And that kind of inner transformation, I think, is a lot of what we're exploring in these podcasts is how do we work with our own experience? I think you're speaking to it with the yoga retreats and cultivating compassion. How do we bring about those, that inner transformation that can allow us to engage in the world in a wiser and a more compassionate way? And I think, you know, this discussion, I think, is one way of helping to kind of some of those inquiries, some of that inquiry, really. And your interpretation is really helpful because when I said fear and you clarified its response to fear, that's absolutely right. Because it is, in some regards, the fear that I won't be able to pay my bills. That gets me out of bed in the morning. And that's not a bad thing. But it is inability of individuals to acknowledge and to be able to deal with the fears that they might have as related to other people, cultures, or places that creates a lot of the discord in the world. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Mike. Mike Barnes, a pleasure and a privilege to talk with you this afternoon. In Good Company with Hugh Byrne. Things that was very powerful in what Mike Barnes shared with us this afternoon was some of his own personal healthy habits. For example, not responding to emails or just checking them twice a day rather than just treating them as whenever something comes in, I need to respond to this. And also being very, very careful about the times he spent online and actually choosing where he put his attention. This allows him really to be in the driver's seat rather than being purely reactive to what's coming in from the world. And I think he had a lot of very wise things to say in those areas.